John chapter number 11. Uh, Most of you, if you grew up around church, would be familiar with this passage of Scripture, uh, which is about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Very famous passage of Scripture. Uh, We're going to read 46 verses today, not right now, but through the course of our sermon. So that means grab a snack, uh, cancel your lunch plans. I'm just kidding. We'll, we'll make good time with it, but we're going to cover a lot of ground and try to get just kind of a, a bird's eye view of this text and maybe what it's teaching us. But let me, let me read a couple of verses with you. If you're new with us, I will say this is a great time to join into our John study. We like to pick books of the Bible and study them verse by verse. But John 11 and 12 is almost like an intermission in John. Uh, it really is kind of this break in the narrative and what happens. And then 13 kind of really gears up towards the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, but let's read just a couple verses together. I want you to see one of... The many themes in John 11. There's a, there's a lot that I could have preached on this morning from this text, but I'm just going to pick one of the themes and try to tackle it. So look in verse number three of John 11. It says, Therefore his sister sent unto him, being Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou, and then it has this word, lovest, is sick. If you look down in verse number five, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and, his, and her sister and Lazarus, this, uh, these siblings. If you look at verses 35 and 36, the shortest verse in all the Bible, Jesus wept, is there, which is immediately followed by, then said the Jews, behold how he loved him, exclamation point. This is the Jews seeing Jesus weep over the death of his friend, and their, their exclamation is, look at his love. And that's really what I want to focus on from John chapter 11 this morning, is look at how he loves. And I think that we'll be able to see a lot in this text to show us the love of Jesus, not just for Lazarus, not just for Mary Martha, but for you and me. One pastor compared the love of Jesus to a diamond with many facets. And I would agree with that. My goal this morning is to take the diamond of God's love and just turn it and to let the different facets catch some light and let it sparkle in your eye. Just a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here. I just want to twirl it around for a little bit and and just let it shine at you. And there's so much to be said from this text. I think we may even be back in this text come Easter time. Uh, But we're going to tackle this from this angle this morning. Look at how he loves Look at how he loves. First, I want you to see that there's wise love. Read with me the first 16 verses. It kind of sets the stage for this story of Lazarus being raised from the dead here in John 11. Look at verse number one. A certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany of the town of Mary and her sister Martha. So this is the first time that we've been introduced to this family in John. Uh, But if you were reading Luke's gospel, you would get an earlier introduction. It's very apparent that throughout Jesus' ministry, uh, he would go and and maybe lodge here with his family, that they would feed him. But there was a a steady relationship uh, with the siblings that Jesus had. And it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. That's actually referring to a future event that we'll see here in just a little bit, uh, in a few weeks, that, that Mary did this to the Lord. Verse 3, Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And we had therefore heard therefore that he was sick. He abode two days still in the same place where he was. That's a startling statement. If you don't know the end of the story, you think, what are you doing? 
Verse 7, after that, he saith to his disciples, let us go again into Judea. His disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late uh, sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again. Jesus, like, they're kind of after you. I don't know if you want to just, you know, go to their neighborhood. Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if any man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. Jesus employs a metaphor that basically means it's daytime, it's work time. It's go time. Let's go. I'm not stopping. Let's go. It, it's time to work. This, this is the time. Verse 11, these things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Makes sense, right? You know, if you're sick, get water, get some rest. Like, leave him alone, Jesus. Don't wake him up. You know, stay here. Let him sleep for a little bit. Very sensible thing to say. Verse number 13, howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe, nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. You see very plainly in this text, Jesus loves Lazarus. Uh, the text itself just says that he loved him. Uh, Mary and, and Martha sin and say, we know that you love him. It says that he loves Mary, he loves Martha. But verse 6 says, he loves Lazarus, therefore he stays put. Verse number 15, Jesus said, I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad he died for your sakes. Now let's, let's just stop a minute. Just let that sink in for just a second. I love him, but I'm not going. I love him, but I'm glad for your sakes that he died. Does that not seem strange? Right? Like th- those, are, those are little passages to set the stage for this, to, to help us see that like this is, this is startling. What, what is... What is being taught here? What's being taught is the wisdom of the love of Christ. For you, I would say it this way, the love of Jesus may include trouble for you. The love of Jesus may and probably does include suffering and trouble. Just because you give your life to Christ does not mean that you're trouble-free. Just because Jesus loves you does not mean that you're problem-free. I've heard people say, you know, if God loved me, then fill in the blank. This wouldn't have happened. The finances would have stayed intact. I wouldn't be sick. I would still have my health. Yet here it is in black and white. Jesus loves Lazarus, yet he leaves him sick, yet he lets him die. He didn't even have to go. He could have healed long distance. But he doesn't. Why? Verse 4 tells us very clearly the glory of God. So that the glory of God would be put on display. This was a showcase for the glory of God to be manifest you say, okay, that's, that's good for, you know, Lazarus. That's great. I mean, I see it in black and white on the page, how the glory of God was manifest. He was raised from the dead and people believed or whatever. But, but it's tougher for you, right? Because you don't have a book that gives you the end of your suffering. It doesn't tell you necessarily the end of what's going to happen or how God's going to get glory out of this problem or this pain in your life. And many people say, okay, then how, how's God going to get glory out of my pain? And that's the question of the day. It's not my glory, it's God's glory. So I can't tell you the answer to that. Ultimately, he's going to show you that in time, or maybe you won't. Maybe, maybe you'll just learn when you get to heaven. But I can say this, I hear something very common with people when suffering or pain or sickness or trouble comes their way, is that they see the glory of God and that they finally learn how fragile and how dependent they were upon God all along. 
Very common for people to learn that. For people to see that, you know what? I know now that I need God. I mean, I would have said that previously because I'm a Christian, but I now see how dependent I am. When you lose something that makes you strong, your health, your income, your child, whatever it was, when you lose some part of your life that's important to you, that that gives you safety and comfort and joy, you feel as though you lose control of your life. You feel as though God hijacked your life. That's how you feel. But if you let it sit for a little bit, you'll learn very quickly that you never had control of your life. That the idea that I was in control and that I could manipulate things and I could set the, the chessboard exactly how I wanted to try to you know, create a better life for myself, that that actually was, it was not real. Your life is based on outside factors that are completely outside of your control that you can't manipulate, that you can't power through, that, that all of a sudden you learn that that was a delusion. The idea that my whole life is because I worked hard or because I was smart or I got the education or I applied myself, or you begin to realize, no, that's not the case. You wake up from the stupid dream and you realize, I'm not in control. And pastorally, let me just help you, what will happen is you'll get harder or more tender when that happens. You will either say, I should have had control, I used to have control, I want control back and become harder, or you'll become more tender and you'll say, you know what, why should I have control? I didn't create me. I'm not creator, I'm created. I shouldn't be in control in the first place and I can surrender this to God. All of us, all of us in this room have crosses that we are bearing, some small and some large, some temporary, some long-lasting. Some of you have a head cold and some of you have tumors. Some of you didn't get your tax return on time and that was a little bit frustrating and others of you lost your job and, and your you know, financial future is very bleak. All of us have crosses to bear. Is that a sign that you're rejected? Is that a sign that God's out to get you? Is that a, is that a sign that he doesn't love you anymore? No. No, it's not. You can know and rest assured that there is wisdom contained in the love of Jesus. All of a sudden, when you understand that, you can now judge your circumstances by the love of Jesus rather than judging the love of Jesus by your circumstances. Lots of people fall into the trap of saying, you know what, I know Jesus loves me, but if this goes wrong, this goes wrong, that goes, all of a sudden, you don't love me as much anymore. You don't, you, you, where is this? I'm judging Jesus' love by my circumstances. You can invert that and you can start to say, you know what? No, 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 no. I'm not doing that. I know Jesus loves me. I know that that's there. And I'm going to judge my circumstances by this. He must be trying to accomplish something in me. This must be for, for something. Suffering's not for nothing. This, this is here for a reason. He's allowed this. His love is wise. John Newton said it this way. He said, everything is needful that he sends. And nothing is needful that he withholds. What's he saying? God knows what he's doing. Jesus knows what he's doing. When, when he puts something in your life or takes something out of your life, that that is, even though you don't understand it, even though you wouldn't wish it, you're going to see through this text, the disciples are like, Jesus, uh, yeah, let's not go. That's a bad idea. That Mary and Martha come to him. If he would have been here, he would have been healed. They don't really get it. It doesn't really fully sink in, probably until Lazarus is raised from the dead. But Jesus knew what he was doing all along. There was wisdom in his love. His love said, wait. His love said, let him die. And you've got to understand that. That it supersedes your own wisdom, but it's still love nonetheless. 
We also see that there's a forever love. Look in verse 17. The story continues and Jesus is going to get close to the house of Mary and Martha there in Bethany. Then when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh into Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. That means about two miles. Many of the Jews came to Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Very indicative of their, of their character. Martha is this very action-oriented person. Mary is, is a bit more introspective and reflective if you, if you follow their story throughout Scripture. Then in verse number uh, 21, Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, Whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. That's an amazing statement. We'll look at it more in a little bit. But she is saying, look, I I wish you would have been here. I wish you would have healed him. But I still have faith in you. I'm not depleted of my faith. I know that you're from God. I know that you can ask God and he will give it thee. She's really not telling him to raise Lazarus from the dead. She has no concept of that in her head right now. She's just making a statement that I still believe, even though I'm bothered by what you've done here, I still believe that that you you are in fact of God. 23, Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Concept that, that Jewish people had, that Christians now have, is very clear in all the Bible, that there is a future resurrection that awaits us bodily one day to usher in eternity. And she said, I know that's coming, the last day, everybody's going to rise. You know, I get that. But Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? What a question. Here she is in the middle of her mourning. Look, do you believe? You know, he's really breaking up the the mourning episode here. And she says, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. 25, 26, and 27 is honestly the centerpiece of this text, something that we'll circle back around to here in a few months around Easter time. But what this is saying, more or less, is that there's a resurrection reality in Jesus and in his followers. That Jesus says, I am the resurrection, I am the life. This is in me, the power is in me. But then he says, it's actually in you as well. And he says that he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So though he died at one point, in the future he will live. When you die, you don't stay dead if you believe in me. That's what he's saying. That there actually is the body coming back to life. This is what the Bible teaches, that when, say, I die tomorrow, that my soul would be separated from my body, body in the ground, soul in the presence of God, but it would not stay that way, that eternity is not bodiless, that there is a resurrection of the body. The body's not a bad thing. God created it and will redeem it, and my soul will be reunited with a glorified body to spend eternity in, not just floating around as some sort of, you know, Casper the friendly ghost in some sort of spirit world, but actually in a physical body. He says that if you believe on me, if you're dead, you're not going to stay dead. There's a resurrection. I am that resurrection. I have the power for this. But then he says, verse number 26, that there's another kind of life. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. What's he saying? He's saying that there's a, if you're living, there's kind of a, a spiritual resurrection that happens now. Not just a future thing, but, but, a, but a now thing, a present thing. That there's something that happens on the inside that you could equate to resurrection. I would put it this way. 
when you met Jesus, since you've met Jesus, did anything revolutionary happen in your heart and in your life? Because what he's saying is there is resurrection, new life. There is, there is vitality. There is something big that happens internally on the inside. Have you experienced that? What, what you could only describe as maybe my heart was once hard, but now it's soft. Or I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I live. We, we come up with these kind of word pictures in our, in our literature, in our songs to be able to describe this. But that's what he's talking about. Something so amazing that happened that you point back and say, that was a spiritual resurrection. I was made alive. I was quickened that that Jesus made me alive somehow. He says, "If, if you believe on me, you have this. For my believers, eternal life never dies, what he says, eternal life. Jude and Paul put it this way. They said that, if you know Jesus and Jesus knows you, if he's your savior, then he will one day present you before the throne faultless and blameless, without blemish, with great rejoicing. That there's, there's a eternal life, there's a forever love. Nothing is going to stop him from presenting you faultless and blameless. That that will happen with rejoicing. That he has a hold of you, that that is forever. It was put this way in verse 36 really what we're looking at today, that the Jews said, behold how he loved him. They're actually wrong. They're close, but not exactly. They put it in the past tense. They, they said loved. Now he's dead, used to love. Not exactly. He loved Lazarus presently. You, you never put the love of Jesus in the past tense. Never. Not just for Lazarus, not just for Mary, not just for Martha, for you and for me. It's a forever now. He loves me now. He loves me tomorrow. The next month when you wake up, he loves me. Not a future version of you, a 2.0 you. I got my act together, me. He loves that me. And and then one day he'll love me. No, not a a previous. Well, I used to be better and I used to read my Bible more and I used to be more faithful to church and I used to have more time to God and he used to love me then. No, he loves forever, settled, done. He he loves. You see in, in this text that there is this never die, everlasting life, always there. I'm with you. There's wise love. There's forever love. There's, I would say, my favorite part of the text, compassionate love. It goes on and you find that Martha introduces Jesus to Mary again. Verse 28, when she had so said, she went her way. She called Mary her sister secretly, saying, the master has come and called for thee. She's trying to get Mary some alone time with Jesus. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. So she, she wasn't very incognito about this. She just gets up real fast and, and leaves. Verse 30, now Jesus was not yet coming to the town, was in that place where Martha met him. And the Jews then, which were with her in the house, comforted her. When they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, they followed her, saying, she goeth into the grave to weep there. So everybody in the house thinks, well, she's going to the grave to weep there. Let's go with her. Let's mourn with her some more. Let's follow her. So Mary isn't going to get alone time, really. She's going to have this band of people following after her, weeping and wailing and mourning. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. Same thing Martha said. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in his spirit was troubled, said, where have you laid him? Then said they unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, 
Behold how he loved him. Some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind cause that even this man should not have died? And he could have. Here's the question that strikes me as I read this. Beautiful passage. Jesus weeping over the death of his friend. But why is Jesus weeping when he knows he's about to raise him from the dead? That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Why, why doesn't Jesus walk on and say, cheer up, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'll, I'll watch this. You know, why, why does he engage in that when he knows that there's this, this imminent prospect, this certain prospect of life being reinstated to Lazarus and him rising from the dead? There, it's not iffy in his mind. He doesn't think, you know, oh, I, I hope this goes off well, cross my fingers. You know, he, he knows that this is going to happen. So why is he weeping here? Why is he engaging with that here? Why, why didn't he break out a pinata from his robe and say, look, change the mood here. Let's bust this and have a party. And maybe we can illustrate it this way. They say when you become a parent that there's an invisible chain that runs from your heart to your child's heart. And that if, really you can never be a free spirit again. If your child is wayward, if your child is unhappy, if your child is sick or miserable, then you really can't be fully joyful or happy because you're attached to your child. I experienced this last week with a pastor from Kansas who I talked to for a little bit who wept over his 20-something-year-old child who he's just heartbroken over that, that won't live for Jesus. Now, it doesn't quite work the opposite. If you're a child, you can be pretty happy on your own, even if your parents aren't happy. You can get enough emotional distance from your parents. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But if you're a parent, it, does, it doesn't really work exactly the same way from a parent to a child that when, when there's something wrong in their life, you don't have enough emotional distance to do that. It affects you and it bothers you and you can't fully get to joy. So how many of you know what I'm talking about? Parents in the room, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Even if it's just a little sickness or something that they're going through. What is happening here, I think, is more than just Jesus seeing the cause and effect of sin, because he certainly would have been aware of that. Jesus is no doubt feeling the grief. Jesus is no doubt feeling the pain. Why? When he knows he's about to raise him. I dare say it's because he has knit his heart so closely together with the heart of his followers and the heart of those whom he loves that when, when he sees their pain, he intuitively responds to it. He intuitively feels it. He intuitively leans into that. Even if he knows he's going to raise Lazarus, that his heart is bound up with the hearts of his people whom he loves and the compassion flows out of him, maybe even more so than a parent with their children. That, that he, this hits him, it punches him in the soul, and he weeps. Now, no other religion teaches about their God this way. All the other religions say that God is far too transcendent to, to really piddle with our little emotional squabbles and the things that really bother us and tinker with our hearts, that God's really disinterested in that stuff. But you see that that is not the God of the universe here. That he's, he's not cold, he's not stoic, he doesn't move back in isolation. His spirit is troubled, his heart breaks, tears flow down his cheeks. Is God consistent? Yes. Does God never change? Yes. Is God immutable? Yes. But that does not mean that God is stoic. And when you look at Jesus, you see that. You see someone who is, his tears are intertwined with the tears of his people. Hosea would put it this way in chapter 11, verse 8 of Hosea. 
He gives a story about God judging his people rightly. But he says that it turns the heart of God. He says that it, that it almost makes God's stomach turn. That, it, that it, it gives him a kind of heart failure even to do that. Even though it's the wise thing, the just thing, the good thing, the right thing, it still is painful. Psalm 56 says that God puts our tears in a bottle. That every tear that comes down our cheek, God's bottled them up and he knows about it. That he knows our pain. That he knows our grief. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say the love of Jesus is not just this love, this wise love that arranges things in your life that you wouldn't have asked for it and he knows what he's doing. I'm trying to say it's not just a forever love that will be there constantly. It's a compassionate love that is there, that feels, that hurts, that is with you. Someone that you can cast all your care upon, someone that you can run to, someone that you can pour your heart out to. Augustine said of this text that you find one sick, other sad, but all of them loved and he who loved them was both the savior of the sick, the raiser of the dead, and the comforter of the sad. What's Augustine saying? Turn the diamond. You'll see. Is he savior? Yes. Is he powerful raiser of the dead? Yes. Is he, is he comforter of the sad? Yes. He's all of them. The love of Jesus is there in all of those. Lastly, we see tenacious love. This is a, a really, really interesting wrinkle to this text. Verse number 38. We're going to see the miracle now. But there's something happening beneath this miracle that's astounding. Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the ever-pragmatist, says, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. He's about to show the glory of God. This is what it's all been building to. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, now before he says something, I do want to know, did he stink or not? Like the text never tells us, like if they plugged their noses or if they didn't. I've always been curious about that and I want to know one day. But nevertheless, Jesus says, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus said unto them, Loose him, let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary had seen the things which Jesus did, and they believed on him. But some of them went on their way to the Pharisees, told them the things that Jesus had done. Unbelievable miracle, right? But not just a miracle, John portrays all the miracles as signs pointing to something bigger, grander, larger. A sign that they should believe on Jesus. And many do, it says. Some don't, but many do. They put their faith and trust in Jesus after this. But this, this instant, this moment had a domino effect that Jesus, I would contend, knew, knew all too well about. We saw in verse number 8. The disciples said to Jesus, Jesus, don't go to Bethany. It's real close to Jerusalem. And those Jerusalem peeps, they're trying to get you, right? You find that after this happens, some of them run back to the Pharisees and say, he just raised somebody from the dead. He just healed a blind man. He didn't make a layman walk. He raised somebody from the dead. And you'll find if you trace the text out, I don't have time to read it all, but you'll find in verse 53 that they have this discussion and the high priest stands up and says, there's only one solution to this problem, kill him. 
that they had tried to kill him previously out of emotion and out of kind of a gut reaction that you were, you were heretical or you did something. It wasn't really planned. It wasn't really concocted. But you'll find in verse number 53, from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death, that all the religious leaders get together, and now they are, they are making the plans. They are going to put him to death. You find in verse 57 that both the chief priests and the Pharisees gave a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it, that they might take him. Now there's a Officially, a warrant out for Jesus' arrest so that they can kill him. And Jesus knows that this is going to happen, I would argue. He knows that this is the last domino to fall for these people to officially make the plans to execute him. I don't think he's oblivious to that. This happens, and it's almost as if Jesus walks up to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he knows that I will raise this man, but I'll bury myself. It's almost as if in this moment that a monster has a hold of Lazarus, but to, 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 to open the jaws and to get Lazarus out, Jesus is going to have to put himself into the jaws of the monster himself. It's almost as if Jesus says, come out so I can go in. That he knows that this is going to be the beginning of the end. This is it. This is the final straw. Yet, my how he loves him right? Yet still, Lazarus, come forth. Yet still, let me show you the glory of God. Yet still, I will do this and I will engage in this. It doesn't stop him. There is a a fierceness, there is a tenacious love here that is pursuing, that is going, and even people crucifying him, which is ultimately part of his plan, but even the crucifixion will not stop him. Even the grave will not stop him. That his love goes. Now let's stop for a moment because we're almost out of time. We could say far more, but we've twirled the diamond a bit. Let it sparkle just a little bit. But what does this mean for you? Is this just something to gander at and then say, wow, that's cool, bye. I dare say if you apply, you know, yourself to this text, you could come up with probably 10 more applications than I have, but there's a lot. What does this mean? First and foremost, it means believe. That's what the whole point, the whole story was about. This was leading to, Martha, do you believe? Yes, I still believe. This was leading to, come out of the grave. Many believed on him. So if, if you have believed, great. If you've never believed, believe. Jesus did stuff that you can't explain other than that he was God in the flesh, working miracles, and that he, he dies for your sins and he raises from the dead himself. And if you've never believed, today's your day. Put your faith and put your trust and know that you're trusting yourself to a loving, powerful, you shall always live, never die, resurrection power inside of yourself, sort of God. So if you haven't believed, believe. He ends up on the cross and in the grave for you. He rises for you. But beyond that, I know that many of you in this room are are believers, so what do you do with the love of Jesus from this text? A lot. I don't have time to give them all to you, but I would say first, can you pray from his love? Didn't we see that in verse number three? That the petition of Jesus, the request of Jesus was this, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. You ever pray like that? You ever get sick? Lord, the one whom you love, sick. Sick. You pray from that. That's a foundation that is far more stable than, Lord, hope I've done enough good today to to have some, some credit with you. 
That's a far more solid place to know, you know what, your love is never past tense. You're no, it's not even future tense. It's today. Lord, the one whom you love is sick. Pray that way for your, for your spouse, for your children. Lord, the one whom you love, they're going through a tough time. I know you love them. I know you care for them. Lord, your property is in danger. Lord, this is this, the one whom you love. You ever express your emotions from that love? You find that in 21 and 22. Martha comes up. Lord, if you would have been here, he would have died. But I still know that you're from the Father. I still know that whatever you ask, he's going to grant of you. I still have that faith in you. It's amazing confidence in this moment where her heart is troubled, where she's struggling to, to wrestle with the wisdom of God and what it means for her, where she's obviously a little bit frustrated, but yet she still expresses her continued confidence in God and operates from a foundation that isn't squishy, isn't iffy, but, but is, Lord, I still know, I still believe, I still have confidence in you. Can you take those emotions to God? The, the ancient way of, of dealing with your emotions is stuff it. Just suck it up, be stoic, don't do anything with them. And then they eat you inside out. The modern way of dealing with your emotions is express them to everybody. Just blubber on Facebook, tell everyone you come in contact with, get a therapist, pour yourself out, and just express yourself. And I'm not minimizing friends that you can talk to about things going on in your life. But you find that Martha rushes to Jesus, the first one she wanted to go to, the first one she wanted to pour herself out to, the first one she wanted to express this to, was God in the flesh. I dare say, take a lesson from her. Know that you can go to God and you can tell him what's going on, what's bothering you, what's, what you're struggling with, what, what you don't get. You can give that to him, but at the same time, not being belligerent and not pointing you know, the finger in his face with accusations and, and not begrudgingly, but to say, look, I know that you're still God. I know that you can do whatever you want. I know your love for me, but Lord, I still got to tell you, my heart's messed up. Can you, can you take the love of God and from that have a real conversation with him? Express yourself to him. Can you show this love to other people? Right? Can you walk into a room and count the tears and put them in your bottle, so to speak? Can you weep with those who weep? Go into a, a place and say, you know what? I want to feel what you're feeling. I want to be empathetic towards you. I want to be sympathetic towards you. Some of you have the idea that showing emotion is a bad thing. It's not, okay? It's not. You know how I know that? Jesus did. Especially you guys, some of you, if if you grew up this way and your dad told you, you know, it's never manly to cry or whatever. Okay, I get that it may be a hurdle you have to jump over, but your emotional gamut should be more than angry and angry because I'm hungry. Like you should have more than that, right? Right? Jesus did. He feels it. He comes alongside of his friends, those whom he loves, and he expresses that in his presence. He expresses that in being there with them and crying with them. He wasn't afraid of that. Are you afraid of that? Can you see that you should be able to look death in the face and not be scared of it? If what he said is true, that he's the resurrection and the life, that, that those who believe in him shall, shall never die, always live, that, that he has that for you. I could go on and on and on. There are a thousand implications from this text. But when you start to understand the love of Jesus and twirl that around and see what it means for you, that it is wise and that it is fierce and that it is, it's there for you forever, that it's never going away, it's compassionate, he cares about you. All of a sudden that gives you something to live from. Something far more stable than your own thoughts and emotions and feelings. 
Today can we say as these people said, behold how he loved him. Look at how he loves. Look at how he loves. Not just Lazarus. Not just Lazarus. Not just Mary. Not just Martha. You. You. Me. Us. Look at how he loves. I dare say if we would do that and understand that, it would change us for the better.